Hi, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we unpack the career and life stories of our guests. And at the end, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes raised in our conversation. Have you ever fallen in love? Well, putting aside intimate relationships for a moment, my guest today has fallen in love with social enterprise. Hayley Flament is the CEO of the Social Enterprise Council of New South Wales and ACT in Australia and an expert in residence at iAccelerate, which is a division of the University of Wollongong. She is a self-confessed chocoholic, and the journey to where she is today has been very hands-on. Welcome to the show, Kylie. Thanks, Phil. Nice to be here. And, and the most important question is, well, what's your favourite chocolate or form of, of chocolate consumption? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, I, milk chocolate, good quality. Uh, I do love lint and that delicious green and black organic one. So good. Excellent. Um, well, yeah. um, I'll, I'll know what to send you uh, for Christmas or your, your birthday. <laughs> anytime, anytime. <laughs> we don't need a special occasion. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you were pursuing a corporate career and then you changed course. So tell us a bit about that process. You know, what were you doing and why did you change course? Sure. Uh, so I did a Bachelor of Commerce in International Business and moved to Australia. So I, I was born and bred in New Zealand, um, did an exchange year in France, fell in love uh, with a Frenchman who was moving to Australia. So landed here uh, quite a while ago now and started the corporate climb, you know, jumped into a project management company as the office manager, um, which was a brilliant first role. They were growing very fast. And so it opened up lots of directions for me, went into human resources because that was where I felt I could make a difference. And then um, through a series of different organizations in architecture and then in education um, started to get into strategy and you know I was I was doing all the things that we'd been told at uni that you should do um, you know and and doing well and getting promoted but it felt really empty I was working really long hours and doing well kicking goals getting bonuses but I kind of went well what what's what am I achieving ultimately and it felt like I the harder I worked the richer some shareholders became um so I spoke to my CEO at the time so a couple of levels above me and said I I, I think I need to do something that matters um I need to do something that where I know that my hard work is going to make a difference in the world and she'd come from the healthcare sector and uh knew about a role and recommended me for it and against the odds, uh, I I got the role, which was cardiac services manager at the children's hospital at Westmead. Um, and again, very quickly, so they extended my role to both children's hospitals in Sydney, and then I moved into um, strategy roles over time. Working, I, I call it sort of a translator or interpreter between the clinicians and the bean counters. Um, so that was a phenomenal six years or so working, you know, I, I could see the difference I was making. We were designing new ways of delivering clinics that were about the patient and not about the clinicians. So um, the one I'm most proud of was uh, there was a type of cardiac patient that had to come to the hospital eight times a year and there was no cure for what they had. And we, we had around um, 30 or 40 of these patients and um, that meant eight different visits because they had to see a geneticist and a psychologist and a cardiologist and all of these different people. And for someone living in Dubbo or Wagga or wherever, that was days off school, days off work, travel and accommodation, stress. Um, and so we took us two years to get all the clinicians on board, but 
got there in the end, we designed a clinic that had the eight different clinicians and children could come once a year and see everyone in one day. It's a long day, um, but it meant less stress for the family, less trying to find childcare for their other kids, et cetera. So um, I could see what I was doing was making a real difference and that was a beautiful thing. Um, and then, yeah, did an MBA during that time. Again, got taught how to make a lot of money um they really that MBA education is phenomenal for uh you know how to use your marketing skills to convince people to buy things they don't need and how do you use your HR skills to convince staff that if they work harder they'll be happier um like actually it's a little bit gross when you start looking at it going oh I've got taught how to exploit and extract the maximum amount of money for myself and for my company from the system as possible um, but one of my subjects was social enterprise and it was a complete game changer. So Debbie Heskey-Leventhal, who now runs the MBA program at Macquarie Uni, um, she was just this force to be reckoned with that showed me and all of my classmates that you could use the tools of business, but instead of using them for personal gain or for or to make company profits, you could use them to solve social and environmental problems. And that was it for me. Like complete love affair with social enterprise, um, this business for good, the best of both worlds. And great, <clears throat> excuse me, to come into that the social enterprise world, having had that other contrasting experience as well. Mm. And there's lots of touch points there from what you said. I want to go right back to one, which is you ended up on a corporate pathway and I have to say, I've been there, done that as well. And I never really questioned it at the time. I just thought, this is a natural thing. This is what people around me were doing. Mm. Did you have any influences or, or maybe lack of? And is that why you ended up there? I'm, I'm always interested to know why you ended up on that path. Why I started there? Yeah. Um, I was a really bright kid. Uh, so, you know, I was school ducks and school captain. Um, and so I, it, my whole life, people really pushed the idea that I needed to use that um, to do something worthwhile, I, you know, that I was a guaranteed success, kind of this was the narrative. Um, and I remember this high school teacher, the year after I started uni, I went back to my hometown and this teacher came up to me in the street. He had never taught me. I didn't actually know who he was. And he said, I can't believe that you are studying business and, you know, you owe it to yourself and your family and, and to everyone really to be a lawyer or a doctor. Um, okay. Yeah. So this old school lawyers and doctors, you know, if you've got good grades, that's what you should be. Um, and I sort of said, oh, well, you know, I can, I can also, business is also a great thing that I can do. And so I think I had a high, high ambition and high drive to succeed. And when you get into a business course and then into the business world, you get given these goals. And so you just achieve the next goal and the next goal and, you know, getting that promotion, getting that bonus, getting that project, you know, delivered on time, on budget and to scope, um, it's a very goal-oriented sector and I thrived in that. Um, and I didn't really, I do remember a conversation I, I had with um, the, the Frenchman that I'd fallen in love with about our goals in life and, and me saying I want to I want to make the world a better place and him saying, well, that's ridiculous. Um, pick another one, but you can't. 
Uh, and, you know, I laugh about that now because I've been able to take all those that toolkit that, that I studied and worked in and use it for good. Um, but at the time, it was sort of this dichotomy. You could either make money or make the world a better place. You couldn't do both. And that's, mm. I think, where social enterprise, you can do both. Yeah. And it would seem like, I don't know what the time period was, maybe it was around 10 to 15 years ago, Though that attitude started changing, albeit slowly, but I think it's accelerated a little bit and we're getting to a better place. Um, but I, I do want to touch now on the health sector experience you talked about because that's a place where you do have a very tangible outcomes in what you're doing. And you mentioned a great example of reconfiguring, reconfiguring this journey for your patients, which mm. was a great benefit to them. At the same time, do you do you see machinations playing out in, in the back office or the management circles of those businesses where you're going, yeah, some of that stuff isn't quite aimed in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, nothing's perfect. And I think um, there's all these competing needs and it's really, really hard to deliver on all things all the time for everyone. So you know, one thing that really struck me in the health system was um, the clinicians, it, it's an, it's actually a really broken, broken system. So to be a doctor, had I, had I pursued that as that high school teacher wished I had, um, you know, you pay tens of thousands of dollars in fees, you study for eight to 10 to 20, you know, if you're a pediatric cardiologist, it's about a 12 year time frame. Um, you work incredibly long hours and hopefully at the end of all of your study, you are both knowledgeable but still care deeply about the outcomes that you have. Now, paediatric doctors tend to. It's really easy to keep caring around children and so paediatricians and specialist paediatric doctors are phenomenal um, but I can see how the long hours, the hard work, the huge student debt do eat away at people. And then you end up at 35, you're finally a doctor. Your hours are still so long. There is so much more need than you have capacity for. The admin burden that they now have, like every single thing you do, you have to write down. Um, so they spend half their time just, you know, write, writing the evidence for what they've done or what they're about to do. Um and and the impact on the individual as a clinician is huge and we keep expecting more and more of them. Um, I, you know, the, you look at the doctors who are in their 50s and 60s and not many of them have a marriage intact. You know, not many of them could say they were hands-on parents. Um, so we sort of place this personal burden on people who are doing public good and I see it in social enterprise as well um, I think we need to address the elephant in the room around that 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 you know you can either pursue wealth and get to the point where you don't need to work anymore because you've, your money's now working for itself or you can do good things in the world but um, what is the cost to that and I see Social enterprise is a way of finding a middle ground so that you don't have to give up everything to do the public good. Um, but I think we still need to address a lot of things and keep talking about that. Yeah. So let's get into, it's a wonderful segue into describing 
social enterprise because mm. I had a had a recent guest on the show, Scott Coe, who talked about this more, I guess, from a social business perspective. Yep. But if we go, I guess, pure social enterprise, how do you describe it to a, a layperson? The easiest way is if a business and a charity had a baby, that's a social enterprise. So um, it's well, a that's business. Wonderful. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> it's a really nice analogy. And I pinched that from Cal Champagne, one of my old colleagues um, at Green Connect. So I didn't come up with that, but I use it all the time because it explains beautifully that middle ground. So it's a business like any other business. It trades, it, it sells goods and services to get its revenue but it exists specifically to make the world a better place. And that might be socially or environmentally or culturally, um, but it has a very strong purpose and reinvests the money that it makes in that purpose. And, and it must have a charter explaining that and what those parameters are. Yeah, so in Australia we don't have a legal structure for a social enterprise. Um, so they can be for-profit or not-for-profit. They can, you know, you can be a sole trader, you can be a partnership you can be a joint venture you can be uh, an association or a company limited by guarantee there's you can be any any legal structure but you do need to show and clearly show what your purpose is and how you're delivering on it um, and so you know there's a spectrum from the really obvious to the ones that might be engaging in a bit of greenwashing social washing um, but ultimately it's all heading in the same direction which is using business as a tool and money as a tool. So money was never meant to be the goal. You know, money was invented so that you and I could swap our goods and services for each other's without having to barter. Super efficient, brilliant tool. Um, it was never meant to be the goal. But we, you know, the guy that came up with GDP growth spent the rest of his career railing against it as a measure of progress. It is insane that we think that, the amount of money that changes hands in any given year tells us whether we are better off as a country or even, you know, a state or as, as the world. Um, you know, company profits don't tell us whether that company is doing good things in the world or not. And my personal wealth is not my measure of success or, or a measure of whether I'm a good human. So we took this tool and turned it into a goal. And I think social enterprise flips that back on its head and says, no, money is the tool that allows us to achieve other things. And so what are those other things? What are we going to do in the world? Um, how do we make this place better than we found it? So some social enterprises will be purely not-for-profit. Some may have, a, I guess, a limited distribution, a limited ability to, to pay their, their shareholders. Is, is that correct? So everyone is different. You've got the likes of, say, humanity. So I'll go back. There's three main types of social enterprises. Um, one is a work-integrated social enterprise or a WISE. That's a term coined by the awesome people at um, the Centre for Social Impact who study this. So they employ people who need the jobs most. So it might be the cafe that employs homeless youth or um, you know, the gardening and landscaping business that's engaging young Aboriginal guys, whatever it is. Um, so there's, there's a direct connection between the activity and, and the beneficiary by the sound of it in that yeah. model. Yep. yep. So by employing people who need the jobs most to yep. do to make a good or, or deliver a service, um, you're making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. The second category is goods and services that are inherently good for people on the planet. So, you know, the likes of Zero Co., um, which is uh, plastic-free toiletries and cleaning products and whatnot, um, or, um, you know, great the Great Wrap, 
which is the um, glad wrap alternative made from potato peelings. Um, and then you've got the third category is a profit distributing company. So this is we sell a good and service just as good and you know, similar to others, but um, we use that money to invest in something. So Humanitex is a really pure example of this. They invest 100%. They, they distribute 100% of their profits to um, charities that help children. So they're a booking platform. You can buy event tickets through them. Now, their product has to compete commercially. So this is the business side of the social enterprise, but they exist to make the world a better place. They want to maximise the money they can send to children's charities to say to, to help with education and, and healthcare. Um, and so that's the charity side. So it's this amalgamation of business and charity. Yeah. And I think it must be interesting, and you'd see this given your your role, I guess your scope and view over that sector is there must be situations where things aren't going well for the business and therefore it's really going to put a lot of pressure on focusing on on the social aims of the business. So do you, do you see those situations occurring very often? And, and if so, what generally happens? It's a constant tightrope walk. You know, you have to you have to maintain the head of the business and the heart of the charity and you find yourself in situations all the time where you're having to make choices that would maybe benefit you commercially but have an impact on the, the impact you're trying to have in the world or vice versa. Um, and so I think when you are a social enterprise, you do spend a lot of time considering the ethics of how you are in the world. And I think that's a good thing. You know, imagine if every business, and I, I do, you know, people say, what, what's your aim? You know, what's the end game? for SECNA and my end game is to no longer exist because social enterprise should be the only way of doing business um, and it was the only way of doing business for tens of thousands of years it's just in the last two or three hundred and particularly since sort of the 70s um, where we've had this crazy individualistic highly capitalistic um, neoliberal way of seeing the world where it's all about me and mine and how I can get more, more, more. Um, and, you know, any kind of doing good that that we engage in is about my good. You know, self-care is this huge industry and whatnot, and it's we've lost that collective view of the world. Um, so it's actually social enterprise is not a new thing. It's a return to older and I would say better ways of doing things mm, back to the future perhaps yeah so you led Green Connect we'll explain that in a moment a social enterprise for four years as a general manager was that your first social enterprise role or was there something happening in between uh, Westmead Hospital and Green Connect uh I was constantly doing bits and pieces all over the place you know on various boards and committees and whatnot but Green Connect was Green Connect, um, when I moved to Wollongong, it was just this holy grail. You know, they were doing good for people, good for the planet and were financially viable. Um, up until then, I'd always seen social enterprises that had either a social or an environmental focus, and this was sort of the trinity. It was amazing. And so, um, yeah, I fell in love with it, joined their parent company's board. So they sat within a community centre at the time. Um, because I was on maternity leave and typical high achiever thought I thought I needed to, you know, 
do something during this downtime, which any new parent will realise is ridiculous and there is no downtime when you have a newborn and a toddler. Anyway, I thought it was a great idea. Um, joined the board and the day I joined, they said, oh, by the way, Grand Connect is demerging. And I was devastated because there were lots of great things that were happening within that organisation, but Grand Connect was really the one for me. But um, I'd, I'd worked on mergers and acquisitions in my corporate world. Um, I'd never worked on a demerger. And um, so I jumped in with both feet and helped make that happen. And they transitioned to a national not-for-profit. And um, then the, their general manager said, hey, can you take over my job? I'm exhausted. And, you know, it's been five years and I think you could do this. And I was like, oh, thanks, but no, no, no. I think I'll get bored, which you know, looking back now is ridiculous, but I was working at the children's hospitals with like a $55 million portfolio at the time, um, doing some big stuff. And this was this tiny little, not quite million dollar turnover social enterprise. And I loved them, but I, I thought, oh no, I'll get bored. Um, I had to eat my words so many times over the years because it was never boring. It was constantly a challenge. Um, like every single day I was faced with the complexity of balancing these social and environmental and financial needs um so yeah she came back a second time and convinced me and I said I'll give it five years and uh and I I did almost like just about five years as GM and we you know we tripled in size and we launched new business arms and um we you know almost collapsed multiple times because when you're employing 120 young people and former refugees to do five different businesses of environmental work, it's the constantly crises and, you know, throw a pandemic in for good measure and some bushfires and floods. And it was, yeah, the, the best and hardest job I've done yet. My current understanding of Green Connect is farming operations and selling food, zero mm -hmm. waste events, helping to manage zero waste events. Yep. landscaping, staffing solutions, and there might be a couple more. Op shops. Op, shop. op shops, yeah. I'm wondering if you could pick one or, or two of those categories and, and talk about it um, from a, a person's perspective who's come to, to work in there or get some experience in there. What does that journey look like for the, the person um, that Green Connect is trying to help? Mm. So it's actually, it sounds like five completely different businesses and industries and in a way they are, but there is method to the madness. So a young person who um, has multiple and complex barriers to employment, which might be, you know, financial constraints, lack of education, um, mental health concerns, physical health challenges, um, you know, family violence. They might have been in trouble with the justice system. Whatever it might be, there's more than one thing going on that means they can't get or keep a job. And similarly, former refugees, so Wollongong has a large refugee population um, and it's really hard to get a job when it's not your language, you don't understand the, um, the sort of expectations of Australian employers, um, you also have had trauma and you might have mental or physical health challenges. There's a lot going on for you too. So young people and former refugees find their way to Green Connect, often through word of mouth. Uh, we say, you know, as long as you turn up and pitch in, we will back you. Uh, I say we because I still feel very much a part. Of, I haven't been able to put Green Connect in the past yet. It's still very fresh and I love it. 
Um, so I'll keep saying we because it's just easier. Um, we offer them uh, training and work experience. So uh, two mornings a week for three weeks. Um, so they come to the farm. It's an 11-acre permaculture space. We grow 97 different herbs and vegetables and fruit and there's pigs and chickens and alpacas and um, bees and goats and sheep. It's phenomenal. It, it's this beautiful little piece of paradise in the middle of suburbia and it's and, a little valley right it's, it's yeah. beautiful because it just sits in a little valley yeah yeah and you can't see it from the road and you sort of turn up going am i in the right spot and then you walk in and this huge lush ground opens up in front of you with three different hillsides and just permaculture if you haven't heard of it look into it it's amazing um really diverse way of farming land and and um yeah there's something for everyone and so people come to the farm and then we offer them paid work um and so the idea is that um we figure out what someone's good at and what they like um so almost every young person that comes to green connect we ask them what they want to do as a job and they say no 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 um you know, they'll often not look at us or often one word answers if you're lucky, like really big chips on their shoulders. And for good reason, when you start to understand what their story is, when they open up, you just go, man, I would be angry with the world too. And then the former refugees, we say, what, what would you like to do for a job? And they'll say anything, I'll do anything. Um, and so part of the journey is, um, ha- you know, finding a community, finding people that value you um it's about you know a job is more than a job it's it's dignity and pride it's um social connection it's financial independence so you get to choose what your money goes towards um there's so many pieces to having a job and to having a community um and so then they're offered work in the op shops or in zero waste or in gardening and landscaping and we are very understanding of all the barriers that they have but um the expectations are the same for everyone so whether you're a supported employee or not there's the expectations that you'll turn up on time in the right gear follow instructions work as a team etc but we'll put in extra support depending on what you need and then uh once they show that they can do all of those things then we'll offer them more work in our um, labor hire or staffing solutions team Um, so that's going and working in mainstream businesses who engage us to provide them staff at short notice. So there's this sort of stepping stone strengths-based approach to it. And throughout, it's young people and former refugees working together, which was just based on the two groups that needed the jobs most in Wollongong. But this beautiful thing happens where the young people bring English language and Australian culture and the former refugees bring incredible work ethic and stories of hardship that make us all appreciate how good we've actually got it. And so there's this thing that happens in Murabutsi, one of our staff once said that, you know, what he loves most about Green Connect is that everyone's a teacher and everyone's a learner. There's no hierarchy. Um, yeah, I was, I was constantly learning every day. And, um, yeah, it's just this really beautiful, supportive, um, and everything we do is good for the planet as well so the farm there's no plastic um everything we sell is in waxed cardboard boxes that then get composted at the end of their lives you know no no nasty chemicals are sprayed on anything everything's organic and um yeah it's just a 
different way of doing business that ties everything you know everything's interconnected but in the business world we try and pretend that it's not and we we sort of narrow things down and silo things um social enterprise often takes us back to how everything is interconnected i think that complexity is something when i was in the corporate world i had no comprehension of how complex social challenges and intertwined they were and mm. um spending a bit of time with one of the organizations you mentioned earlier was like this uh, hello, open your eyes. And it was a really rude shock. And how how could we impart, I guess, that message and experience more readily into bigger business? Or I'm not, not saying everyone has that limited perspective I had, but clearly there there are some perspectives you get if you've only been in the corporate sector. Yeah, social enterprises and not-for-profits generally get a lot of corporate volunteers being offered. Um, or approaching them to say, oh, you know, we'd like to set up a corporate volunteering program. And over and over again, the experience I've had is someone who, you know, is a high achiever in the corporate world completely underestimates the the intelligence and the hard work and the complexity that go into social enterprise. So, you know, you assume that because you've managed to get yourself on a six-figure income by the age of 30 um, that you can do anything but come in and try to work with people who live in poverty um, to you know turn up on time in the right gear um, all of those things that it takes to get and keep a job and you soon realize how little you know and how little you can do in the face of that complexity and so Every single time uh, I engaged with corporate volunteers, they would go away saying, oh, my goodness, Green Connect is amazing. I can't believe what you guys achieve. It's so complex. Like I'm really, you know, I'm so grateful to have spent the day with you. This has been a complete eye-opener. And we would walk away in tears just going, that's a day of work that we'll never get back. Like now I've got to go home to my emails and 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 my reports and and you know and figure out how we're going to get more work for this staff member who came in today to say that she can't afford soccer boots for her child who's been offered a spot in a rep team or whatever like yeah the 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 complexity is real if it were simple we would have solved it by now um it's really 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 easy to make money honestly making money easiest thing in the world uh making enough money to see the change you want to see in the world to to really affect change socially and environmentally much harder and doing it in an ethical way um so yeah I, th I think there is a humility about social entrepreneurs because they realize that they are just a tiny piece of the puzzle but they keep getting up every day and working on this thing to make the world a better place mm. <clears throat> excuse me and it's very nurturing uh, industry I guess social enterprise because it is you just mentioned a whole lot of challenges at the start of this piece of Green Connect of the challenges people are bringing into the to the role and yeah it's there's no there's often no specific solution you know you can't read a recipe that says this is exactly how we'll solve this person's challenge but you've I imagine you've got to be very aware of, of what's going on for them and help them through that process but when you mm -hmm. think about what comes out the other end if you end up with someone who's then fits into a regular job in society, that's a really huge turnaround mm. uh, for the country, <laughs> let alone their local community and for them as an individual. 
Yeah, I think there's a humanity that is missing sometimes. Like if there were a recipe, and and you know, I've had this conversation with people in government quite often. Um, and the Centre for Social Impact did this study about how social enterprises are affecting and improving the social determinants of health, so the things that underlie um, disadvantage. And ultimately, it's connecting with the other person as a fellow human and then doing the right thing. It's not, oh, if we put them through this training course for six weeks and then we, you know, and then we do this thing and then we do that thing. It's not a conveyor belt. These are human beings with with complex lives and needs and emotions. And so basically the, the social enterprise is employing people who need the jobs most. Just turn up as a fellow human and and then do what that person needs most. So on, you know, I remember one year on Are You OK Day, um, one of our staff, one of our managers spent the entire day talking to staff having these really full-on conversations about are you okay and she did this like this was part of her job anyway but on this particular day um she just no meetings no emails I'm just going to do this and um a lot of our staff were not okay and you know one one young person that stands out in particular uh admitted that he was considering um taking his own life that things were that bad he couldn't see a way out um, you know, and and they sat under this tree for about an hour talking. And she said to him, "What what's what like? What makes you happy? What can I do?" And he said, "Oh, I love video games." Okay, do you have you know do you have uh, video games at home? Oh, well, my PS Five broke, um, you know, a few weeks back, and I've got all these games, and that like that's really what gets me out of my head. And so, brought, she came back to the office with this list of things she's like right Kylie this is what our staff need and for one family it was knives and forks they didn't have enough knives and forks for the whole family and for this kid it was a PS5 and um there was another young young woman a a young Aboriginal woman who'd recently moved into her own home and she was living on two minute noodles because she didn't have a fridge freezer um now we, you know, I looked at the list and I'm like, right, we'll just put a call out on social media. And within 24 hours, we had everything on the list delivered to our office from community members. Someone donated a PS5. There were knives and forks. There was a fridge freezer and an offer of a ute from someone else to get the fridge freezer to this young woman. Like it was just, that was amazing. And the thing that made that work was one, finding out what would make a difference for that individual and not going, right, we're going to give knives and forks to all the staff because that's what people need. Mm. Um, And two, we'd built up this relationship with our broader community where if we said we needed a PS5, then that's what we needed. And we didn't need to share that person's story um, or, you know, go on this big campaign. We just said, hey, Wollongong, can anyone help? And people stepped in. And it's sort of like, that's the that's the that's what you would do for a friend um you know if that's what would help that young person who has gone on to great things which is wonderful not a straight road never a straight road but um he's doing well if that's what the person needs if that's what will make the difference today then that's what you do and so anytime we design these cookie cutter programs um i'm not surprised when they fail because we're not cookies yeah and funny the a lot of the focus in corporate innovation today is around human-centered design and i think it's trying to get back to 
some of that human centeredness, but it's very hard when you're doing something at scale as, as a big company and not having that very individual, uh, individualized or human touch point mm. with, uh, that you just mentioned. And I'm glad you mentioned Are You OK? because an upcoming guest very soon will be Graham Cowan, who is a founding director of Are You OK? Mm. So uh, there you go. There's a nice synergy there. That's awesome. The human-centered design pieces, I'm going to segue for a sec. But yeah, go for it. That I, It fascinates me <clears throat> because, you know, you'd say like the, the work we did around the patient clinics was human-centered design, et cetera, et cetera. But um, human-centered design is getting a bit of flack at the moment because, again, we've failed to recognise the interconnectedness of humans and the environment. And so we keep doing human-centered design and all about us, but we are part of a bigger whole. Um, so even, you know, with, with all of our staff with their complexities, you know, climate change the fact that they, you know, are, are struggling to breathe because of bushfires, like all of these things are also affecting them. We can't take one piece and just do that one thing. It's all connected. Um, and that's quite overwhelming at first, I admit, but when you realise that we need to do better socially and environmentally and culturally all at once, um, maybe, I don't know, we stop siloing things um, so human-centered design was a wonderful thing, but it has to come with an understanding that it's not. Like there are these other factors as well that should take um, as much priority as humans, if not more. Well, you're playing into some of my pet hates here because I've been cringing lately at the number of advertisements I see on TV for companies who go this and this and this, and we plant trees every time we do that. And I go, oh. Mm. I really don't have a lot of faith in the fact that, well, A, planting trees is the best way to go about fixing the climate and B, that you're actually doing it and they're surviving and going forward. So I think, yeah, mm. trying, trying to do those bolt-on solutions doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of greenwashing and social washing at the moment and I'm all for it, to be frank. Um, not Not for it in lieu of the real work, but once a company announces some green stuff or some socially... Um, responsible stuff they can't walk back from there they can only go forward and so if a company is going to greenwash um, I'm like yep get on that train because it is going to keep going further and further and further and they have to um, so yeah I, I no longer like I, I had this deep hatred for greenwashing um, but over the years I've realized that it's the first step towards actually being an ethical company so go for it but just speed it up a little yeah that's great a great perspective so just finishing on green connect a couple of extra things mm. or for, for listeners who haven't i guess been to wollongong and been to the area where where this is situated it is in a postcode that in terms of the overall state is technically disadvantaged um, in inverted commas mm. and parts second Second, no, it's the most right. disadvantaged suburb right. in New South I knew it was in, yeah. in the top three or, or the bottom three, whichever way you look at it. Mm. However, to actually visit this area, yes, you see some challenges, but you also get an incredible sense of positive change and that people care about what's going on in their community. So mm. give me your thoughts on that and the role Green Connect um, can help or is helping to play in that. In a lot of communities, and I'm not saying everyone, but where people are struggling um, and where people come from lots of different cultures, I feel like um, 
there are still social connections and it's almost easier to strengthen those social connections. So, um, you know, you think about the when when you have money and wealth, you need to protect that money and wealth. And so you put locks on your doors and security cameras and barbed wire and, you know, you're really careful about who you open, you know, open your home to. And, and there's this fear that comes with wealth. And so you just kind of recluse yourself from society and um, where when you have little, like I can't tell you the number of times our former refugee staff in particular have have tried to feed me like they just you know they 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 don't have much but what they've got is for sharing um and so I think yeah there's a weird I'm sure some scientists have done some graph somewhere about social isolation um and how we the wealthier you become the more socially isolated you are in some ways um in other ways of course you know, when you don't have money, and I had one young person we spoke to when we were redesigning some of our program, um, she was saying that, you know, she felt like she was under house arrest because she had no money and so she couldn't make new friends because she couldn't afford the bus to go and hang out at the shopping centre or skate park or wherever. Um, And so, you know, with money comes options um, so there is sort of the two sides of the same coin, but if you can get people to a space um, and a space where they can have their needs met socially, but also, you know, we grow food and there's always food that can't be sold or whatever. And so there's always fruit and veg um, or eggs or whatever being exchanged. Um, if you can get people there and have their basic needs met, then I think social connection is something that, these communities often really really value and are doing beautifully without anyone else's input Um, particularly multicultural spaces I think there's something amazing in many of the cultures that move to Australia um, where that sharing culture and that collective the idea of we before me um, is still there where that you know I, I grew up in New Zealand it was it's my entire schooling was as an individual and this individualistic approach but um, many communities don't have that and we could learn a lot from that and the current I don't know what the current figure is it's often around 75 80 thousand dollars that the point uh, the income you need um, at which point more income doesn't make you technically mm. happier yeah so uh, I think what you're saying place to that you you want to have enough options but not <laughs> too much it starts becoming a problem not yeah. that not the most of us um, would be recognizing that problem at this point in time. So just moving on now to your current role, heading up SECNA, the mm. Social Enterprise Council, New South Wales and ACT. What's your perspective? Well, you know, how do you feel in that job? How does that how's that working out for you? <laughs> yeah. Um I, I talk a lot about how ambition is up here and resources are down here, um, but that's the case in every social enterprise. So I was part of a group of social entrepreneurs who came together a few years ago to say, you know, there's all these social enterprises doing all these phenomenal things, but one, we find it hard finding each other. It's sort of we accidentally bump into each other and then form these great relationships and there's this incredible um, collaboration. No, it's beyond collaboration. When Green Connect was really struck down by COVID, we decided to launch a new arm of the business um so gardening and landscaping 
and um, you know kind of a natural progression from what we were doing at the farm and we felt it could open up some more work options for our staff but we didn't know what we were doing so I rang three social enterprises I knew and said you know we're thinking about doing this any advice they gave me their price lists their equipment lists their 52 page work health and safety manuals like they gave me everything and that you would never see that in the corporate world like that just you know it's beyond belief that any business would offer another business all of their IP for free no questions asked you know nothing required in return Um, but that's what happens in social enterprise all the time but it was really hard to find each other to do that work and to share those resources and knowledge and the other thing was we kept having people in government say, yeah, 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 we know that place-based solutions work. We know that social enterprise works. We even know your good value for money, but it's too hard to work with all of you because you're just so, you know, you're everywhere. Like, you know, we'd rather work with one mediocre provider who can deal with the whole state than 200 of you scattered all over working with different cohorts, you know, in different industries and different locations. It's too hard. So we came together and went, right, we need a peak body. You know, we need to be able to find each other and collaborate and we need to be able to speak with one voice so that business for good or social enterprise can find its place in Australia and help tackle some of these challenges in a really effective way. So that was three years ago, just gone in March. Um, And then when I announced I was leaving Green Connect after my almost five years was up and I felt like we were in a good place and I should hand the reins on to the next person, um you know the role of the first CEO role came up at Secna and initially I said oh no 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 you know someone else should do that but um I went to the social enterprise world forum so this is where countries from all over the world gather around social enterprise and it was held in Brisbane last year and just it felt like I was with my tribe like these are my people this is phenomenal and so yeah I put my hat in the ring um was was appointed to the role of CEO so it's you know it's a tiny little peak organization but um, we are I, I get to sit in meetings with government speaking on behalf of social enterprises and I think it feels like having really good outcomes so um, you know talking about grant processes or um, evaluation so you know one government department was saying oh we don't know what to evaluate we've given money out to all these social enterprises to do this thing and we don't know what to evaluate. So we're going to, we're going to evaluate everything. And as an individual social enterprise, if you've received money from the government, you can't push back too hard against whatever they want to put in place because you're scared you'll lose the money and that, you know, you already had big plans and how you're going to make the world a better place with that money. So, um, having Sekna in place now, I can sit down and go, so two things, one, that's going to be really expensive. Are you resourcing the social enterprises to do that? Because that was not part of the deal originally. And two, if you're going to evaluate everything, that means those social enterprises in theory are going to have to interview their staff about, say, their level of trauma if you want to know how, you know, the level of trauma has decreased or their mental health has improved or whatever me interviewing someone about their negative experiences and and how hard life is right now doesn't help me to build a safe and welcoming space for them and a really you know trusting relationship so me evaluating that thing is going to have a direct negative impact on me achieving the aims of the program 
and just, you know, light bulb moments from the government folks um, that, that you know, me having that one conversation means that 10 social enterprises are hopefully not going to have to pour resources into evaluating and evaluating things that might stop them from helping people. Um, so that's really exciting and, and you know, bringing the sector together through events and stuff. Yeah, if there's, we know that there's 4,000 social enterprises around New South Wales and ACT. We've only got about 270 members at the moment, um, but we're three years in and that's a pretty, pretty good um, growth rate. So it's moving, it's happening. Um, the United Nations General Assembly last week threw their support behind social enterprise, which was huge to have the UN say social enterprise and the solidarity economy, as they call it, is where we need to get to and all member countries should be supporting social enterprise in a big way. Um, so there's movement on this and it's pretty exciting to be in a position where I hopefully um, am making it easier to do business for good. If, if I can make it easier for other social ent entrepreneurs than I had it because it was really hard, um, then I've done a good job. Mm. Sounds very satisfying if you can make progress that, that really helps a whole lot of enterprises and then unlocks a lot of social value yeah, uh, for, so. uh, for our society, which is great. Hmm. Um, there's so many things that came up there and we don't have time to cover evaluation, <laughs> me measurement, um, mm -hmm. because time is going to beat us. Um, so I think uh, we could carry this on. And, and if anyone has any specific questions they, they want or have arisen out of this conversation, please send them in to me or uh, Kylie's details will be in the show notes somewhere as well. We'd love to hear any, any views and, and real burning questions you have. But to lead us into a wrap-up, I've got three quick-fire questions where I just want your gut-feel response to them. Okay. When you think about purpose in life, you know, what does that mean to you? What, what is purpose in life all about for you? Uh, oh, I think it's knowing that I've left things better than I found them. Um, and I really admire people that have a really specific purpose and we need lots of those people. Um I don't. I'm very scattered. I want to do all the things. Um, but certainly it means that in my everyday life choices, my purchasing decisions, um, everything I do, I yeah, I want to make the the choice that makes the world better, um, not the choice that makes me richer or better off. Wonderful. Second question. What are you looking forward to from here? I I'm looking forward to the day we have a New South Wales and ACT social enterprise strategy. So we're, we're, there is one for Victoria. Queensland's working on one. Um, I know at a national level we're in discussions with some ministers about a national social enterprise strategy. Countries like Canada and Scotland have done this years ago. Um, so that and also, you know, I'm thrilled to see the Australian government following, again, countries like Scotland and Canada and New Zealand looking at measuring what matters. So recognising that GDP growth is not telling us anything other than how much money changed hands last year, um, how we measure what matters so that we know whether we are better off, whether our people are better off, whether the planet is better off. Um, that's really exciting. And so um, I'm watching that white paper closely to see what the Australian government does with that because um, I think it's a shift in the right direction. Right. And your third question is from your journey, if you had some advice about someone who was maybe 
10 or 20 years behind you in your journey, what would that advice be to them about finding meaning, purpose or happiness in their career or life? Um, hmm, so much. Uh, I think do something that matters and know what the trade-off is between personal wealth and public good and um you know if you can earn enough like to your point feel about how much you need to be happy um and then you're declining happiness after you earn that amount like you know you should earn enough to live comfortably um but when you live well that's that's a whole different ball game so living well for me means you know living in step with your values and within a community um that that values the same things. I think surrounding yourself with good people, role models, um, you know, people you can bounce ideas off. Um, and also the thing I'm still learning and, and really struggling with at times is um, knowing your limits as well. So I know a lot of social entrepreneurs, you know, we tend to, we know that if we do that extra hour or we do that extra thing or you know we push a little bit harder then that means amazing things for the social or the environmental or cultural thing we're trying to solve and so we keep pushing and um, burnout is real Um, you know well-being is really important and so finding that happy balance between doing the things that matter and doing them well but also not burning yourself out so um, not being the charity for the charity, not um, prioritising the pu- public good so much that it comes at too much of a personal cost for you. So knowing where your line is um, and knowing what fills your cup and, and making sure that you do that. And trying to be your best self in being able to help others is, is I guess, part of that as well. Yeah, just making sure that there is a bit of self in it. I think sometimes people are so selfless that, they lose themselves and, and then you can't help anyone. Mm. Well, that's um, that's great advice. And I loved your an earlier point you made, which was about becoming, I think you said, isolated by your wealth or, or something around that. So um, that was a really interesting concept, which I haven't, haven't thought so much about before, despite the statistics saying that. I think it was a really nice way of phrasing it. Mm. So, um, Kylie, you've, you've earned your chocolate today. Um, <laughs> It's been wonderful having you on the the show and thanks for sharing your Purpose Edge with us today. Thanks, Phil. I really enjoyed that conversation with Kylie and I've got to say she's a really good sport because I did this recording with her once before and guess what? I forgot to hit the record button and she was good enough to come back on and do it again and I think... We had a richer discussion for that anyway, so maybe it was fortuitous. And uh, I really will send her a block of chocolate, I think, to thank her. So she had a a great example of values um, and I guess sticking in an unwavering way um, to her values, leading to a a change in career focus. And a lot of people are looking for that type of change from a very commercially oriented one to something more in the social sector. So three takeaways that that I came up with. One is that if uh, a business and a charity had a baby, that would be a social enterprise. That's a really nice analogy. And I like how she was able to adapt and apply her business or commercial skills in in a different setting. The second thing was 
the realization that if you have enough in life, well, that's enough. You don't necessarily need more. And she really wanted to focus her, or still does focus her efforts on, on solving some of the, the bigger problems we have in society today. I also loved her extra observation that excessive wealth can be a form of social isolation for, for some people or many people. And thirdly, the title of the episode, Making Money is Easy Compared to Driving Grassroots Social Change. And she gave some really good examples of what that looks like in practice. And that's important just to make it real and how a cookie cutter approach doesn't really work for uh, people who are facing a lot of challenges in their life or have a disadvantaged background. So it was a great uh, conversation, I think. And in the show notes, you'll find a link to Sekna, her organization. Um, you'll also find a link to an upcoming free event if you're in New South Wales or Sydney area. You can uh, go along to that and find out more about social enterprise. And uh, the other link I've put in there is to Green Connect. I think you'll find that interesting to have a, a look at that and check it out. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who you think would benefit from the conversation. And until next time, I'm Phil Preston. Bye for now.